Well, good morning. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Aaron, and uh, you are at Emmanuel Anglican Church on Easter Sunday. Now, before we planted Emmanuel Anglican, when we were still in the process of, uh, of building the community four years ago, I was in the habit of asking people uh, what they thought about church and what they made of God, and just random strangers, really. Uh, and so I remember one time, about four years ago, I was walking outside of a coffee shop near Southport in Roscoe, and I ran into a young woman very engaging and engaged woman named Christine who had a petition in her hand. Christine was in the process of advocacy for fair and healthy food policy in the state of Illinois. And there's a lot of things that I didn't know about food policy that she knew that were facing the legislature at that time. And she invited me to sign the petition and, and know more about the organization that she was a part of. And I asked Christine, I said, you know, Christine, you're here on the street, you're, you're engaging people who, um, you know, have, have nothing to do with, with food policy, and you obviously are willing to be rejected, you're obviously willing to, to go through, you know, everything that someone has to go through if you're on the street with a petition in your hand. You care. You care. Would you ever step foot inside a church? Would you ever consider that? And she said, you know what, thanks for asking. She said, to be honest, at this point in my life, I probably wouldn't, because it seems to me that church exists in a different world altogether than the one that I live in, meaning the one where she was advocating for food policy, trying to solve the real problems of our world. The church seems disconnected from reality to me, and therefore, I don't think I would ever go inside the church. Why would I? And why would we? Why would we come here on Easter Sunday? Would we come here to celebrate kind of a, a nice myth, a nice story, really, about the death and resurrection of the Son of God? Maybe to warm our hearts. Maybe it's something to awaken hope within us. But really, should we be wasting our time here if it's not true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Not just a resuscitation, from the dead where he lived a few more years or a few more minutes, but an actual resurrection from his death where he had new life, new power, new authority to make all things new, to be with anybody that called out to him. If that didn't happen in history, why would be here? And even if it did, what would the resurrection of a man 2,000 years ago have to do with our world today? You know, food policy aside, we have a, many other problems, don't we? We have many other problems, problems in our personal life, problems in our family, problems in our city. We are today 50 years beyond the civil rights movement, and our city of Chicago is just or more divided and segregated as it was 50 years ago. Why is that? Shouldn't we pay our attention to that and stop talking about religious myths, or stop talking about religious events even. Does the resurrection of Jesus, did it, number one, did it happen? And number two, I wanna ask the question, does it even matter? Does it even matter for us and for our world? These are the questions that I'd like to, for all of us to consider today. Whether you're here and you're in a place of skepticism, 
Whether you're here and you're a place of disbelief, you do not believe in God at all, or do not believe Jesus is risen from the dead. Maybe you're here, you are a committed Christian, you feel your faith uh, waning. Maybe you, like Flannery O'Connor, say, I have to pay for my faith every step of the way. If that's you, we're looking into the resurrection of Jesus for you as well. Did Jesus rise from the dead? We're gonna look at the evidence of history, the account of history, and then we're going to look secondly at does it even matter? And we're gonna look specifically at how Jesus changed and is changing lives through his resurrection presence. So number one, we're going to look at history. Did it happen? Secondly, we're gonna look at changed lives and changed world. Does it even matter? Does it matter for Christine and food policy? Does it matter for you and the issues you care about? Does it matter for us in our city that we live in? So I invite you to turn to Matthew 28 as we begin this exploration. Matthew 28, we've got uh, this printed in your bulletin. You could also look it up in your Bibles. We're going to consider firsthand accounts of the resurrected Christ, meaning the people who personally encountered Jesus after his death. What did they see? What did they feel? What did they hear? What did they experience? This is what we might call eyewitness testimony, but really it's about a personal engagement, someone telling us about what happened. This is really actually very important for us, whether in our personal life or in the legal system, when we want to take hold of truth, we need to interact with people who had experiences of truth in history. If you have ever opened your Yelp app before you visited a restaurant, you trust personal firsthand accounts. If you ever go to an Amazon page and you say, whoa, 1,200 reviews and four and a half stars, those stars, every last one of them represent a personal firsthand account of someone's engagement with reality. So you don't just look at the website pictures, do you? You look at the pictures that people actually take of their food. And you, li- you read, you read, don't you? You do it. You read their accounts of what it tasted like to sink their teeth into that Easter ham. Is it juicy? Was the wait staff rude? You want to know, don't you? Because you trust firsthand accounts. All of us depend on this to get by in life. When I was on a jury a few months ago for a murder case, uh, we were presented with a lot of evidence, lots of forensic evidence, physical evidence. We heard, we heard testimony from law enforcement, from medicine, from medicine. We heard experts talk. We saw maps. We saw pictures. But you know what? The first highest tier piece of evidence that we listened to and heard and thought a lot very hard about, it was, it was the eyewitness testimonies of the people who were actually on the scene when the gunshots were fired. So what did the driver of the getaway car say about what he experienced? You better believe we paid attention to what he said. What did the woman who was sitting in her car across the street from the alleged murder, what did she see and experience and hear? You better believe we paid attention to what she said. What about the guy who was shot at but not killed? The one with the bullet in his side, what did he experience? Who did he see? Do they all point in the same direction? Do they all point at the same defendant? You better believe that when we sat in the jury room, we talked about the other evidence, but the evidence that we most strongly considered and strongly filtered and really had to wrestle with 
was what did those three people say about what happened from their point of view? And so we need to do the same thing with Jesus' resurrection. Who were the people that saw him? Who were the people that talked to him? What was it like to interact with Jesus Christ after his death? One scholar notes that the eyewitness accounts of Jesus after his uh, crucifixion, the eyewitnesses' accounts of his appearances after his death is as well documented as any event in antiquity. It is as well documented as any event in antiquity. And the first piece of evidence is right here in this. It was originally a biography. It happens to be in the Bible now, but this is ultimately a very early biography of Jesus. And if you were making up an account of his resurrection, you would not choose the eyewitnesses that saw him first. Verse 1 says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, okay, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. In first century Rome, in whether it was Jewish culture or Roman culture, female eyewitnesses, believe it or not, were not trusted. They were not even admissible into a court of law. Because, women, for, because of, uh, of the culture at that time, women's testimony were not believed. They were not taken seriously. So if you were going to fabricate an account of the resurrection of Jesus, you would not choose women and you would not cho- choose these women, especially Mary Magdalene, who at one point in her life experienced an exorcism, meaning that Jesus cast out what the biographers describe as seven demons from her. Maybe you look at that and go, well, that's mental illness. But even still, whether it was demon possession, mental illness, or some combination of the two, why, if you were fabricating an account of the resurrection of Jesus, would you choose someone with, a, with, with kind of a checkered past, someone that maybe you wouldn't quite trust? The only reason that you would include it is because that's how Jesus rolled. Because he chose to, to reveal himself to women first. Okay? The only reason you would include it is because it's, because it's the truth. So what happens... They're going to see his corpse, okay? They want to see his corpse. They have spices with them. Other biographies say they have spices with them. They're coming to anoint him. Verse 2 says this, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. Angel, angels in the Bible, it's another name for messenger. So a messenger of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, um, this stone was a, an extremely large and heavy boulder that would take several or more strong men to move over the mouth of the tomb. It would take a whole group of very muscular, strong men to move this boulder, and the reason that they would do it is to protect dead bodies from animals and from robbers. And so Joseph of Arimathea had arranged for Jesus to be buried in his tomb, the first and only body to be buried in his tomb, and then a stone was rolled over it to keep the body from being stolen. And so what happens here is the angel of the Lord descends from heaven, and he's like, this is how I roll, rolls the stone away with his own, whatever it might be, hands or whatever, and he reveals to the women the first supernatural event, which was that Jesus wasn't there anymore. His clothes were there, other biographies note, but Jesus wasn't there. And um, his appearance, the, the angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became 
like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. So this is a second supernatural event that is revealing the first supernatural event, and both of them happened in history. The angel, as beautiful as he is, as powerful as he is, is only concerned to be a messenger for the power of God and the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead. He is not making a way for Jesus to get through. He's not making a path. Hey, Jesus, run. He's, he's revealing that Jesus has already passed through the tomb. He's already passed through death. And he's risen from the dead. Consider this. The guards which had been placed at the tomb to keep disciples from stealing the body are afraid. Okay, here you have really dressed up, strong um, sort of representatives of this powerful human empire standing guard. And as soon as it is revealed what has happened in the resurrection, they're cowering in fear. But here you have the angel speaking words of life and words of power and a commissioning to the two women. And they are sent to see Jesus. Um, so, uh, verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples that, they, that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have already told you. So they departed quickly and ran from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And before they got there, Jesus met them. All right? So here we have the first eyewitness account. Behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, verse 9. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Now, notice, this is a three-dimensional interaction with the person of Jesus. Let's not insult the women who were brave enough to go see Jesus' corpse, who were brave enough to go see him risen. They touched him. They touched his feet. They heard him say greetings, and they saw him. It was audio, it was visual, and it was kinetic. This is not a, from their perspective, their account is this was no myth. This was no encouraging myself with a vague vision of a vague and sentimental appearing of Jesus in my heart. This was an appearance of Jesus that was three-dimensional that happened in history. Now, Jesus says, um, he, Jesus says in uh, verse 10, do not be afraid, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I love this, because Jesus is commissioning two women to be the first communicators of the resurrection of Jesus. These two women that maybe would never be trusted for the rest of their lives in any court of law, Jesus is trusting them with the message that he is making all things new, that he's alive. And then he says, hey, go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee, I'll see them there. I just have to wonder what that conversation was like because the disciples ran away when Jesus was crucified. They were afraid. They were disillusioned. And then here you have two women coming to you saying, Jesus is alive. You need to walk 100 miles in the Middle Eastern sand to go see him yourself. <laughs> I am sad that history does not record their facial expressions. But you know what? 
Where else were they going to go? So they went to Galilee, and Jesus appeared to them. Verse 16 says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, after all, and to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love this. I don't know if you've ever felt condemned for doubting, for being skeptical, for feeling uh, as Flannery O'Connor felt and many other saints, hundreds of thousands of saints have felt doubt in your soul about whether or not the gospel is true. But the disciples themselves felt that doubt. Some of us think that if Jesus were to appear to us in bodily form in all his glory, that we would believe and that we'd never doubt again. But don't you see? I mean, here you have his own disciples that were with him for three years and they were in his resurrected presence and they were worshiping him, but they were still like struggling with their doubt. And Jesus doesn't push them away. He's like, come close, come to me, feel my, feel my sides. These wounds, they're here, I'm alive. He draws them close. He calls them further in. And that's what he's doing with us today. You know, Jesus appeared to the women um, who no one would trust. He appeared to the 11 disciples who were totally disillusioned, who had, who had ran away before, as he was dying. You know who else he appeared to? One of the earliest historical documents written just a few years after Jesus uh, was resurrected. Um, it says this, he appeared, to, he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to me, and he appeared to 500 other brothers, most of whom are still alive, okay? The between the lines message is they're still walking around. You can go check it. Ask any of the 500 that are still alive, and they will talk to you about what it was like in the five weeks between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, what it was like to interact with him. Let us not, in our conceit, discount the witnesses of history, thinking that we are more in touch with scientific reality than they were. They bear witness that Jesus was alive. And uh, as, as one scholar noted, um, this is as well-documented as anything else in history. But the thing is, what does it matter? I mean, what does it matter? I wish that I could go back and talk with Christine. I wish I could bump into her and recognize her and start asking her questions again four years later. Because you know what I would ask her? I would say, Christine, do you still care about food policy? I mean, after, all, after four years of like, of like pounding the pavement, of pouring your heart out, of fighting for the good legislation to, to be passed in Springfield, do you still care or are you burned out? Do you have hope, Christine? Hope enough to get you out to make positive change on the street? Hope, do you still have hope, Christine? Or have the events of the last four years discouraged you? Has the rhetoric discouraged you? Have, ha, ha, are you still in the game or are you discouraged and cynical? Because you know what? So many of us are where the disciples were after Jesus' crucifixion. We've lost hope. We've lost hope for ourselves, quite frankly, let alone for the world. A lot of us feel discouraged. A lot of us feel cynical. A lot of us feel skeptical. And when you're in that place, you, are not, you do not have the energy to, to, to expend yourself and to give yourself to make positive change in the world, do you? 
We just don't. We lose hope. We're discouraged. So many of us start out hopeful like Christine. And then along the way, we just see, we hit walls and we see how the world really works. And so we, we withdraw like the disciples withdrew and we run and we protect ourselves behind the wall of cynicism and skepticism because it's safer behind that wall. So what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with us and our world when we're behind that wall? What could it mean for the refugee? And what could it mean for a divided, um, racially segregated city? And what could it mean even for our own personal problems that we can't even manage ourselves? Does the resurrection of Jesus in 2017 make a world of difference? I want to read the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples when they were in that cynical and discouraged place. He says in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. So go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now I want you to think about this. Jesus is sending his disciples to 40 years of stonings, of going hungry, of persecution, and ultimately, after 40 years of all of that, to their deaths, and not just to their deaths, to cruel deaths. Most of them died on a cross like he did, except for Peter, who has died upside down. And they did so they did so inviting people into the kingdom, the living kingdom of Jesus Christ. Here's how you live in this loving and beautiful rule. Here's how you live in this multi-ethnic rule. I mean, he's, he's sending them to all of the nations. He's not just sending them to fellow Jews. He's sending them to all of the nations. And he's, and he's inviting them, hey, come immerse them in the life of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them and teach them to observe all I have commanded you. Now, what would have to happen for cynical and discouraged disciples to go risk their lives and to go and to, uh, for the sake of others? What could give them hope? What could give them energy? What could give them courage to face their own deaths? There's only one explanation that I can see, and it's that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he appeared to them and he drew them close and he spoke to them and he breathed on them, and he gave them so much hope that they exploded from Palestine and went into all the world with the message of, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. You know, another historian said, the, the, the growth of the early church rips a hole into the side of history. And it's a hole the size of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's, there's no other explanation. Would you die for a lie if you knew it was a hoax? If it was a hallucination, would you die for a hallucination? Hallucinations don't make you bold. Hallucinations confirm your anxieties and make you more paranoid and fearful and isolated. This is not what we see with the disciples of Jesus. And as they went to all nations with this message, you know what happened in those churches that believed that message? People who were immersed in the resurrection presence of Jesus, they began to rescue orphans and widows. They stopped sleeping around. They started, uh, they started hospitals and schools for the poor and the oppressed. 
there was a decrease in violence among those who accepted this message as warring factions put down their weapons and found reconciliation with one another. And you know what? It didn't just happen then. It still happens today. How in the world could this happen? There's one last phrase that we need to see of what Jesus said before he ascended to the Father's right hand. We need to hear it in 2017 just as much as they needed to hear it in the first century. The second part of verse 28 says this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The resurrected Christ is alive today. Because of his resurrection, he can be alive today, interacting with every single person on the face of the planet that has an open heart to not only his message, but his power. He's here in 2017. He's here in Chicago. We have not reached the end of the work. We could responsibly translate the emphasis of this verse like this. I myself am with you day after day after day, right to the very end. I myself am with you day after day after day until the very end. Now, who else can say that? Can anyone else in your life say that? You know, friends and family are here for us, and it's wonderful, and it's a beautiful gift from the Lord. But you know what? Friends and family, the best and most loyal people in your life can't say this. They cannot promise you that they will always be with you. The greatest leaders that we've known in history and that we know today can't always say this with you. Eventually, they'll leave office, and it will feel discouraging. Eventually, they will die, and we'll miss them. What will we give to have Martin Luther King Jr. back? to give us an example of, of humility and, and grace and loving your enemies? What would we give to have Abraham Lincoln back, leading with his humility and dividing people who, or uh, uniting people who feel so deeply divided? What would we give to have Abraham Lincoln back? No leader can say that they'll be with us always except for one leader, except for one friend, our truest friend and our truest brother, Jesus Christ. And the only reason that he can say that is because he has risen from the dead. The man who ordained me as a deacon back in 2009 is Bishop John Ruchihana. Bishop John, before he was a bishop, he was, just, he was a pastor, local church pastor in uh, Rwanda. And he lived through the 1994 Rwandan genocide, where 800,000 Rwandans were killed by their neighbors because of a civil war. And at that time... Bishop John and his wife had adopted a niece um, as their own daughter. And one night, militants broke into Bishop John's home with machetes. Now, these are neighbors. Um, and they attacked him. They beat him within an inch of his life. And they put to death in a very inhumane way his daughter. Now, Bishop John at that time, as you can imagine, lost all hope. Now, where's the resurrection of Jesus for John and his wife in Rwanda after 800,000 people had been slaughtered? Where was the resurrection of Jesus? What hope could it possibly offer to a divided nation? You know, after the Civil War was over, 
um, the prison systems were overcrowded with people who, who had perpetrated some of this violence. So here you have a country that was divided. Here you have, two, you have intense racial tension between Hutus and Tutsis, um, which is really an artificial uh, distinction anyway. Racial tension be, uh, between the two tribes. Overcrowded prisons, divided country. It reminds me so much of where we are at in the USA. It reminds me so much of where we're at in Chicago. So here you have Bishop John in the midst of all of this with a murdered daughter. Everything in him wanted to hate. Everything in him wanted to, to get behind that cynical wall and, and stop believing and stop trusting. And do you know what he encountered when he was in that state? He encountered the resurrection presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, which Jesus gave to minister to every single person who would receive Jesus. And Jesus spoke to him and said, I want you to forgive the men who killed your daughter. I want you to fully forgive them. Not only do I want you to forgive them, I want you to go into the prisons and I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to go baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you know what Bishop John was able to do? He, he said, Lord, I cannot do it. I need, I need you to somehow give me forgiveness to give to them. Do you know what Jesus could give Bishop John? He could give him forgiveness. He could impart new life to him. He forgave his perpetrators. And he went into those prisons and he preached the gospel and he baptized so many people and it ended up turning out that, that John, this simple small town pastor in Rwanda helped lead a, a national reconciliation modeled after the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission led by Desmond Tutu. He helped lead it in Rwanda, and he saw warring tribes and neighbors that had blood between them, blood between them, forgive one another in the name of Jesus Christ. Only in the resurrection power of Jesus could that have happened. Because Jesus said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I remember driving Bishop John to the ordination service. And I was like, I only had a few minutes with him. And I was like, Bishop John, what was it like to forgive those men? And he's like, oh. He's like, it was unlike anything else I had ever experienced in my entire life. Which makes total sense because the resurrection of Jesus is an otherworldly event. It doesn't fit in with our reality. It turns our reality inside out. It rips a hole in our reality and invites us to participate in his, our life in his life, our history in his history, our city in his city, and he will not stop and he will not leave until the very end of the age. Don't you want that? Don't you want to turn to him now? Turn to him in your skepticism Turn to him in your disbelief. Turn to him in your discouragement. Turn to him in your cynicism. Jesus is alive, and it's not a myth. It's a historical reality that is so much more than history. It's a fact that is so much more than a fact. It's a living reality for you and for us, for Chicago and for the whole world. So let us now follow him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.